0: If you would, stand back up. We've got 20 air squats, and then we'll jump into the workout. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. So, I, I, man, we've thought long and hard about uh, many puns that you could make with us being here at the YMCA. We will spare you all of, of those now. So, if you would, open your Bibles up to John 6. Um, yeah. John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Um, so as I began to wrestle through like this is a incredible day a day that we've anticipated a day we've longed for a day we have worked hard for Um, this is a day that you have people from Mars Hill who are coming to support uh, the birth of this church who are going to go back to Mars Hill you have people who are coming um, because coach Jacobs made them Um, you have uh, people who are coming in, family members who are coming in from out of town, and then you have people who are gonna stick. This is gonna be their church home. And so I wrestled through, like, how do you introduce and and, um, get everybody up to speed with what we're gonna be doing in terms of teaching on Sunday? So our goal is to, at Harbor Community, is to faithfully teach God's Word. And so we think that the way Mars Hill has done that um, is very noble and something that we want to replicate and so we are going to continue doing what Mars Hill has done, and so Mars Hill is teaching through the Gospel of John, and so we're going to just continue right along with what Mars Hill is teaching. So we're in John chapter 6. Um, it, it works out well because we're in John chapter 6, verse 1, so we're starting this new um, chapter. It's kind of a transition point in the Gospel of John. So. Um, I think it'll, it'll go well for, the, for us. But as we begin, John chapter 6, I think it would be helpful for us to, to look at the big picture of what is the purpose of the gospel of John. John tells us at the end of his gospel, um, he says this, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, what we're going to read today is a story of a sign that Jesus does, one of many that He does. John writes about this so that we may believe. So, John tells us at the end of his gospel that the purpose of him writing this gospel is to convince us, to To show us and persuade us that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. His goal is for us to walk away with uh, certain that Jesus is God in flesh and that he is the only way to eternal life. He wants us to convince us of this, to show us this. But more importantly, his goal is for us to, to put our belief, our faith, our trust in Jesus. So that we might have eternal life. So he tells us what his purpose is. An intellectual understanding of Jesus will not suffice. That is not enough. Rather, belief, faith, trust in Jesus is what will lead to eternal life. The purpose of this gospel is important for us to remember as we journey through this gospel. Um, So as we look at this chapter, uh, these first 15 verses of chapter 6, we need to remember what the purpose of this gospel is. So in John chapter 5, going back a bit, um, we see Jesus give the religious leaders one of the clearest explanations as to who he is and what he's come to accomplish. So Jesus, in John chapter 5, tells the religious leaders that he is the eternal ruler, the judge over all the one that all people will have to stand before, the one who possesses the power to give life, both physically and spiritually, Um, and the one who possesses the only hope for eternal life. Jesus, those words come out of Jesus' mouth. He tells us these things. And then he gives us three to five witnesses to support these claims that he makes. And so we learn that witnesses are important to validate a statement. So if I said that I dunked on LeBron James... Everybody would be like, come on, They're like there's no proof. But if Willie says, no, I saw him, here's a video, and then you pull up ESPN and you see a footage of that, then you begin to see, okay, there's witnesses, there's credibility to these claims that he's made. So Jesus makes these bold claims about who he is, but we don't just take him at his word. He then gives us three to five witnesses, um, supporting evidences to who he is and what he's claim to be. So how do we know that Jesus really is God in flesh? How do we know that he is the one that eternal life is found in? We know these things because of the evidences that he gives us. So in John chapter 5, he says, John the, John the Baptist bore witness about me. So you saw him. You asked questions. He pointed his finger at me and said, he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the one that eternal life is found in. John the Baptist bore witness about me. Evidence 1. Then he says, my works bore witness about me. So these things that I'm doing, these signs that I'm doing, these miracles that I'm doing, point to, give validation to these claims that I'm making, that I am, in fact, the Son of God, and that I am, in fact, the one that eternal life is found in. Then he says, the Father bore witness about him, and the scriptures, Moses, bore witness about him. So Jesus gives us these uh, witnesses to give uh, supporting evidence to the claims that he's made. So, it's not foolish to place your faith in Jesus. This isn't a foolish thing. Rather, it would be foolish not to. The evidence is there. Um, Christianity is not based on a lack of evidence, it possesses an abundance of evidence, as we see in John chapter 5. However, what you see at the end of John chapter 5 is despite all of this evidence, all of these supporting claims that Jesus has made, the religious leaders in John chapter 5 respond in rejection, which is a terrifying thing that with all of this evidence, you can still reject truth. And so John chapter 6, what we're going to begin to see, follows a similar progression. So in John chapter 5, the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus performs this miracle. So you have this invalid, this man who was disabled for 38 years. Jesus walks up and says, hey man, get up and walk. He gets up, walks, takes his mat. People come to him because of this uh, miracle that Jesus performs with questions, with frustration. Jesus speaks about who he is and what he's come to accomplish, and then people reject. Well, in John chapter 6, same thing. Jesus performs a miracle. He feeds the 5,000 with loaves of bread and fish. As he began to wrestle through that, that would have been a very controversial miracle in this day and age because that's a lot of carbs in one meal, right? It's a lot of bread. So people weren't going through whole 30 during this time, right? And so because of this miracle, people come to him. They want to crown him as king. And then Jesus speaks to who he is, what he's come to accomplish. And then you see people reject him. So similar progression, similar theme that we see here. So what we're beginning to see is that all of John chapter 6 is one fluid story. And it follows a similar progression to what we saw in John chapter 5. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at John 6. We don't have time to obviously read all of John chapter 6 today. And so I would encourage you this week to to go and familiarize yourself with this chapter. Read this chapter. Community groups. Read this chapter together as a group. So that way we can begin to see this in all Um, It's context. We can begin to see what all is taking place. So John 6 starts with one of the most popular stories in the Bible. If you've been around church for any amount of time, if you've been around Christians for any amount of time, you've probably heard about this story at some point. Uh, You may not know all of the details about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but you've heard about that at some point. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. You're going to hear about it today, right? Unless you cash out and you fall asleep, which we have mirrors and you can still kind of see people. So you'll, you'll, you'll be found out. We'll know that you're sleeping. Um, so unless you fall asleep now, you'll, you'll hear about this story. So um, an interesting fact, this feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four chap- or all four gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, this story is found in all four. It's the only one apart from the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only miracle that is found in all four Gospels. So that tells us that this is an important story, right? If it's something that all four Gospel writers feel the need to tell us about, then that tells us that this is an important story that we need to pay attention to. And I'm going to expound on this more in a minute later on, but I think what this story does here is, It's one of the greatest proofs to who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. So going back to John chapter 5, you see these witnesses. Well, now you have 5,000 witnesses who will bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. If Jesus did not perform this miracle, if this was made up, if Jesus simply went to Denny's and got a caterer to, to wheel in all of this bread and fish, somebody out of this 5,000 people would have said, hey, no, this isn't true. This story that John's telling us, the story Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling us, that's not how it happened. But you have no historical evidence of anyone rejecting this during this time. So you got 5,000 people who are saying, yeah, that's how it happened. That's how it went down. So that gives us more evidence to the reliability of what we're going to read today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see this story being told. The story that we will read today is an incredible witness to who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. Now, when you look at the other three Gospels, you'll see a consistent theme in regards to uh, the timing of the story, and that looks different than what we'll see in the Gospel of John. So this encounter, most likely, as we see in all other three Gospels, Uh, follows the return of Jesus' disciples going out on mission. And so they're they're tired, they're fatigued, and so Jesus and his disciples go across the sea to find rest in the wilderness, um, to, to get away, unplug. And then it also follows the beheading of John the Baptist. But John, the writer of this gospel, is concerned less with chronology as he is theology. And so John is strategic. What we're going to see here is he's strategic in the way that he communicates uh, what Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. John is strategic in the way that he lays this out. And so therefore, I believe that John is intentional in placing this miracle following John chapter 5. He's trying to communicate a specific point in doing so. And what I'm going to try to do is show us how the upcoming, in the upcoming weeks is how this story builds off of what John has previously taught in chapter 5 and the chapters before. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and then we'll go back and kind of summarize this verse by verse. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of, the Gal- of, sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So let's go back to verse 1. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So after this would have been a a vague statement that conveys some time after what was previously said. So what this verse is not saying is immediately following Jesus' exchange with the religious leaders. He shakes their hands, gives them a high five, says, see you later, hops in a boat, and heads across. That's not what we're saying. It's, it's a general term. So at some point after uh, this exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, they head across the sea to this, um, this area. So we don't know the duration of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. But sometime after this exchange, he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So another fun fact, John gives us clarity as to which sea he's talking about here, because around A.D. 20, uh, Herod Antipas founded a city on the western shore and named it after the Roman emperors Tiberius. So over time, that name had begun to transfer over to the lake, and so the name was most likely becoming popular around the time that John is writing this letter, which would have led to John giving this clarifying statement. So Jesus crosses the sea with the disciples, pretty, pretty clear there. Uh, and in doing so, a, la- a large crowd follows him. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So in this story today, we're going to really see John stress the magnitude of what's going on before us. So this is a large crowd that's following him, right? I have pictures in case you you can't wrap your mind around a large crowd. So you see large crowd, and then I have another picture of what not a large crowd is, right? So that's not what we have here. We have the first picture, a large crowd. and There's no other way to to put that, right? So what I love about John is that he tells us why this large crowd is coming. Why are all these soccer fans following after Jesus, right? What's the purpose in them following him? John tells us the large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So going back to John 5, we see one of the supporting evidences to the claims that Jesus made about himself was his works or his signs. And so these things that he was doing are not normal people things, right? These aren't just things that you walk around and see somebody doing on a day-to-day basis. These things are mind-blowing. And so in John 3, Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus and says, Hey, we know that no ordinary man can do the things that you're doing. And so we know that God is with you. So there's this buzz around Jesus because of the things that he's doing, that's caused and prompted people to begin to follow him. And so here in verse 2 of chapter 6 we see that these works or signs are becoming widely recognized by the people. Signs point to, give validation to something being true, something being factual. And in this context they provide evidence to who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. And so, their purpose is to reveal to mankind that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through belief in Him, you might have eternal life. That's what these signs are pointing to. The miraculous works that Jesus was doing were widely recognized, and they led to a large crowd coming to learn more about Him. Now, as we continue to read in verses 3 through 5, you see kind of a strange progression take place. Look at these verses. Jesus went up to the mountains, or to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples, uh, screeching, halt, hit the brakes. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Verse 5 lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? If you eliminate verse 4, it it seems, or yeah, verse 4, it seems to flow a lot better, right? So they, Go up on the mountain, he sits down with his disciples, lifting up his eyes, he sees a large crowd coming. So verse 4 seems really out of place. It seems really forced here. So what's the purpose of verse 4 being there? Why does John feel the need to to awkwardly press this information about Passover being here? Why, Why does he force that? John's information about Passover, it feels out of place. And so what's the purpose for this? But before we answer the why, I think we need to answer the what. What is Passover? I think that will help us begin to understand the why. So what is Passover? Simply put, Passover was a celebration of the exodus of God's people from Egypt. So God miraculously leading his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And so if you were to go back to the book of Exodus, which I strongly encourage you to do in your community groups, go back and refresh your memory on... Uh, the story of Exodus. There's a uh, an app out there called Streetlights Bible, and if you have Apple Music or Spotify, this is a like an audio recording of the Bible, and it's it's not grueling to listen to. Simply put, like it's in, it's pleasant, it's enjoyable. So in your car, just go back. You can listen to to all of Exodus. Um, I encourage you on your way to work, in the shower, don't. Bring your phone into the shower. Probably won't work, but put it outside. You can listen to the story. Refresh your memory of this story. You'll begin to see incredible parallels between the Exodus story, the Exodus narrative, and the passage that we're seeing in John 6. So in this story, God hears the cries of his people, and he acts on their behalf. They're in slavery in Egypt. God hears their cries, and, okay, I'm going to set them free. And in doing so, he calls Moses, who was an Israelite by birth but raised by Pharaoh's daughter, um, to go and be the instrument to which God sets his people free. God had prepared to set his people free from slavery, lead them into the Promised Land, and he's going to use Moses to do so. So Cliff Notes version. During this process, there's ten plagues, the last and final plague, the tenth plague— God announces that he'll strike down the firstborn child of every household in the land. It's a big deal, right? I was the firstborn child. I was the only born child in my family. So I would have been a goner, right? And so, terrible. But in order for his people, Israel, to be passed over from this judgment, they were commanded to slaughter a lamb without blemish, spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and God would pass over them. They would be spared from this judgment. And so, in doing so, they would be passed over, spared. Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you. I will see the blood. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you. So, the blood of the spotless lamb, God's people were spared through the blood of the lamb. Um, God's people were spared from judgment and delivered from slavery. So, while Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt, this takes place. The Passover land. Uh, Pharaoh says, okay, go. They leave. While they're doing so, they run into the Red Sea, so they hit a wall. They can't go any further. People begin to freak out. The Egyptians cho- choose to pursue after them, follow after them. They're coming up on their heels. God tells Moses to um, stretch out his hands over the sea. The waters part. Israel passes through. The Egyptians follow, they make it through, and all of the Egyptians are destroyed. The water closes in on them. Pretty grueling story. As I'm beginning to tell my three-year-old son these stories, like, it, it's a hard thing to say, and they died. Like, it, that's a, yeah, so it, it's it's a big deal. So they, they're spared. And then for 40 years, they wander through the wilderness They make before they make it to the Promised Land. And while in the wilderness, God miraculously provides food for them every day. He provides manna for them, bread for them. So where there is no food, God provides food. He provides bread for them in the wilderness. So Passover was intended to be a time of celebration, celebrating God delivering his people from slavery, leading them into the promised land. And so yearly they're called to remember this. And so John... Is strategic in mentioning Passover here because he wants us to understand one, that Jesus is a greater Moses, and two, how Passover is a foreshadow or a picture of what Jesus was going to come and do for his people. So as we begin to journey through this chapter, we'll begin to see this truth come to light more and more of how Jesus is this true bread. Of life. So for Israel, in slavery, the enemy was too great. In order for them to be delivered, God had to miraculously act on their behalf. A lamb had to be slaughtered in order for their sons to be spared. In the wilderness, there is no food. And so God had to miraculously act on their behalf in order to provide them food. And so all throughout Exodus, we see that Moses was this instrument that God chose to use in caring for and providing for his people. But now we're beginning to see where Moses acted for God. Jesus is acting as God. So Jesus is the greater Moses that you see in the Old Testament. Jesus is the spotless lamb of the Passover that in order for deliverance from sin and death has to take place. Jesus had to be slaughtered. And they're standing in the wilderness. So as they're standing in the wilderness in this story that we're going to see in John 6, looking out, Jesus is telling them, I am the true bread of life. So as God miraculously provided bread for you in the wilderness, I am that bread, that eternal, satisfying bread that in order to experience life, eternal life, you must eat of me. So make no mistake, John is strategic in letting us know that Passover was at hand here. This was not a mistake. He's intentional in letting us know this detail. So looking at verse 5, while sitting with his disciples, Jesus recognizes the large crowd and says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And so John's actually the only one of the four Gospels who mentions Philip by name here. All of the other Gospels are vague in their description of the disciples. So what's the significance of mentioning Philip here in this Gospel? Um, One obvious reason that I found commentators point out is that Philip was from a town nearby. And so apparently Philip knew all the restaurants in the area, right? He would have been a modern day, um, what's it called, Yelp? So he had all the Google reviews for the restaurants, so Jesus is saying, hey, where are we going to eat? And he's like, well, there's Denny's, there's Waffle House, there's a Root's Chris, there's all of these options. So that could be one reason. He's from the area. I'm not buying that as the only reason as to why Philip is mentioned here, because Andrew and Peter were also from the same area nearby. And so I don't think the location of his hometown had much to do with why Jesus asked Philip this question. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus knew already what he was going to do, and he's testing Philip. There's obviously a deeper reason here for Jesus asking Philip this question. So back in John 1, after Philip is called by Jesus to follow after him, Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says this We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. So Back in John 1, we see Philip display an incredible understanding of who Jesus is. He's the one that Moses wrote about, the laws, the law wrote about. So he had this understanding of who Jesus is. Well, now Jesus is testing him in order to broaden and deepen Philip's understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is not seeking counsel here. He's not unaware of what's going on. He's not scrambling He's not desperate, searching for a place to care for the people. He knew what he was going to do next, and his question was for the spiritual well being of his disciples. So look at Philip's response in verse 7. Philip answers 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So a denarii was one day's worth of wages. So 200 denarii would have been eight months worth of wages. Right? So Philip is saying, we don't have the money to pay for this. We'd have to work eight months to be able to afford enough food, uh, a little food, for all of these people to eat. So again, going back to Denny's, I don't know why I keep bringing this up. I haven't eaten Denny in 20 years. Um, but he's saying, like, he's not saying that it, we can't afford this. He's um, yeah, he, he's uh, 200 denarii, eight months worth of wages, wouldn't be able to afford what they needed. So Philip's answer reveals several things for us as readers. First, you can understand who Jesus is, be a follower of him, and forget or still not fully understand all of the implications of who Jesus is, right? So how quick are we to forget who Jesus is in our day-to-day life? God may miraculously provide for us, faithfully care for us in the midst of trials, in the midst of heartaches. But the moment that we encounter another trial, it's so quick to forget and to run to everything but the Lord. And so in the face of trials, um, it is easy to quickly forget all of the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. We can quickly fall into the same footsteps of Philip. But I think also, probably more importantly, Philip's answer reveals to us the hopelessness of their situation. And so purchasing food for everyone was so far beyond an option for Jesus and his disciples here. It's off the table. It's not an option. So if you continue reading, you see in verse 8, Andrew enter the scene by trying to solve the problem as well. He's scurrying around, looking for anything that anyone might have that might help the situation comes back with a little boy's lunch. Um, Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So five barley loaves ain't going to cut it here. I think what John is seeking to communicate is the hopelessness of their current situation. There is nothing that will feed the masses here. It's not humanly possible to feed such a large crowd with what they've been given. Philip highlights their lack of money, and Andrew highlights their lack of resources. There's nothing that they can do humanly possible to feed this large crowd. That's important for us as we move forward. I think also there's two pieces of background information that I want us to see here. First, Andrew says that there's a boy here, right? So verse 10 tells us that there are about 5,000 men in number. And so many commentators point out that this number doesn't include women and children. So it's likely that there's more like 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 people in total here at this miracle. And so that, I think, adds to the awe factor of what we see Jesus perform here. The second thing I want us to take note of is what type of bread is mentioned here. The boy has five barley loaves of bread. Barley would have been um, something that triggered the memory of Jesus' disciples and his readers during this time. If they had an understanding of scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they would have thought back to the prophet Elisha. Back in 2 Kings 4, 38-44, through 44, write that down and you can, you can look back at that later, talk about it in small group. But you see Elisha multiply 20 loaves of barley bread to feed 100 men. Right? So God did a lot of miraculous things through Elisha, but similar to Moses, what we're about to see is that what Elisha did through God, Jesus is now doing as God. So this barley loaves would have triggered the memory of what um, Elisha did and now lead us to, hopefully, uh, what we're going to see Jesus do. So in the midst of a hopeless situation, Jesus is about to provide an, ex- an excess. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Now, if what I just previously said is true, if there's also women and children present during this time, then what that tells us is that chivalry died long before the 21st century, right? Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. What that tells us is that there's 5,000 men who slept outside with their dogs in the doghouse that night. Okay, that's a joke. That's a good example of a bad way to interpret scripture. Um, I think the main thing that I don't want us to miss here is the abundance of witnesses here. I've mentioned this earlier, but there's anywhere from 5,000 to 20,000 eyewitnesses to Jesus. These gospels would have been written while many of these witnesses are still alive. So if this story were not to have been true, then it could have easily been dismissed as false. You would have 5,000 people, 20,000 people saying, no, that's not how it went down. But we do not have that. So the supporting evidence to Jesus being God in flesh and the only hope for eternal life is abundantly rich. We do not lack evidence here. But the terrifying reality is that with all of this evidence, men and women still reject Jesus as Lord. As we saw in the disciples' answer, there was no hope for feeding the masses. They had exhausted their options and were left empty and without hope. But now Jesus is about to provide in abundance. Pull out your pens. I want you to underline some stuff. If you're an underliner in your Bible, I want you to underline this. Look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, underline this, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, underline fill, he told his disciples, gather the, underline, leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, underline this whole thing, filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of lack, Jesus provides in excess. Verse 11, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So can I have seconds? Sure. Can I have thirds? Sure. Eat until you are filled. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill. So they're laid back. The guys are laid back in the grass while the girls stand with their hands on their belly saying, I'm full. They've eaten their fill. Verse 13 is probably the most... Physically impossible verse in all of Scripture, right? Verse 12, Jesus tells his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Then in verse 13, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You just sit and and try to wrap your mind around that. Twelve baskets full of crumbs from five barley loaves. Like that... That does not make sense. So five barley loaves don't fill up 12 baskets. Not great at math, um, but I'm certain at that. So now you have anywhere from 5,020 people full from eating their five loaves of bread and fish. They're full, so they've eaten their fill, and the crumbs from those five barley loaves fill 12 baskets. That's not humanly possible. That is a miracle. It's miraculous. And so therefore, looking at verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they exclaimed, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So they've recognized this is not normal. This is a miracle. And so while they're looking out at their current situation... And they're seeing that they're in the wilderness, they're in this barren land, which would remind them of what Israel was led through, walking through the wilderness, and with Passover at hand. So with that in their minds, they can't help but to think back to when God miraculously provided manna for his people for 40 years day in and day out through the prophet Moses. They can't help but to think back to the prophet Elijah, taking barley bread and multiplying it to feed the hundred men. They can't help but to think back to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So ecstatic, they think that they have found the prophet that Moses has prophesied about. They think that he is here and they're correct. They're beginning to connect the dots and they want to crown Jesus as king. But what's interesting is verse 15. Jesus recognizes this, and he flees. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is not a coward here. He's not afraid of power. Rather, he flees because he knows his purpose in coming, and he knows their desire of crowning him. As king. Jesus came not to establish a temporary kingdom on this earth, he came to establish a heavenly earthly kingdom. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, the purpose of this miracle is to point ahead to the cross, where in the midst of hopelessness he can present himself as the true bread of life. But what we'll see is that the people viewed him as a means to blessings. It means to healthy bodies and food, stum- full stomachs. So we're going to crown him as king because he's doing all these signs. He's healing the sick, and that means that we'll have physical blessing. We'll be good, and then we'll be full. This bread was good. This fish was good. And so we're going to crown him as king. But you cannot hail Jesus as king on your own terms is what we're going to begin to see The crowd thought that if they make Jesus king, then they will be healed, and that they will be fed, and that they will be happy. But Jesus is not about that at this point. Jesus came not to simply meet our physical needs. Jesus came to restore a broken relationship between God and man, sinful man, and He came to do so through taking upon Himself the punishment that we all deserve, dying on the cross, So he lives this life that we could not live, dies this death that we should have died, and then three days later rose from the grave so that we might have eternal life through belief and faith in him. So a question I want us to to wrestle through this week personally and in our community groups is if you do, why do you exalt Jesus? Are you, like the crowd here, enamored by Jesus because you think that he equals physical blessings? Do you love Jesus because of the things that you think you can receive from Jesus, or do you love Jesus because he's worthy of it and because of who he is? I think there's two points of application for us here. I think there's personal, and then there's corporate application for us as a church. So personally, Exalting Jesus does not guarantee your health, it does not guarantee your wealth, and it does not guarantee your prosperity. Exalting Jesus as king, in a way that he rightfully deserves, may result in pain. It may result in suffering. Life is hard, and many of you are struggling, and I know that. You could go around the room And you could say, this is what I'm going through. This is the pain I have. This is the heartache I have. And we would be here for hours. The message of the gospel is not praise Jesus and trials will be then removed from your life and prosperity will be given to you. But the beauty of the gospel is that in the midst of pain and suffering, he offers you life. And so if your faith resides in Jesus, then you've been given the Holy Spirit And in the midst of pain, you may now have peace. You may now have patience, and you may now have joy. And so in the midst of hopelessness, you have now been given hope in abundance. And that is found in Jesus. And then lastly, as a church, exalting Jesus as a church does not guarantee Harbor Community Church's health, wealth, or prosperity. And so we could faithfully exalt Jesus day in, day out as a church and never experience numerical growth. I hope that it does. I hope Harbor Community Church grows. I hope that um, things go well for us. But Harbor Community Church may not last. There's nothing in Scripture that guarantees the growth of this church here. Now, the Big C Church... The church of God, the bride of Christ, which we are a part of, that's guaranteed to grow. There's guaranteed blessing on that. But our little local body here, it, there's no guarantee of this. Preaching the gospel, being a gospel-centered church, is not a business technique that we may use in order to grow our brand. So please pray for your leaders, pray for us, that we'll guard our hearts against selfish gain, And that we'll not use Jesus as a business tactic to grow our product, right? And so pray we as a church will humbly crown Jesus as Lord on his terms, not our terms. So may we never try to use Jesus in a way to promote us and give us gain, but rather may we humbly and joyfully serve him, exalt him because he is worthy of it. So are you trying to hail Jesus as king on your own terms? Or or will you joyfully submit to him as king on his terms? It's okay to love and celebrate and rejoice in what Jesus has done for you. But it's not okay to love this false perception of Jesus that you you have created in your mind in order to profit you in return. And so may we be a people here at Harbour at Mars, wherever you land, may we be a people who accept Jesus' words as true. And may we be a people who joyfully submit to him as Lord, no matter the cross, because he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, if there's anyone in here who's struggling with doubt on whether or not this is true, Whether or not you are real, whether or not the Bible is reliable or not, Holy Spirit, I pray that you reveal truth to them. God, these past few chapters in John have done so much for my faith in you, seeing the abundance of witnesses that bear witness to who you are and what you've come to accomplish. Holy Spirit, I pray that the the scales on the eyes of people who have rejected you, I pray that those will fall. God, I pray that they will see you for who you are, that they will believe in you and trust in you, plus their faith in you. So Holy Spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Holy Spirit, comfort us where we need to be comforted. God, I pray for this body of believers. Lord, rid us of selfish gain. Lord, may we, like you, humbly serve others. God, I pray that we will be a gospel-centered church, that you will be exalted in every aspect of this local body of believers. Lord, you are worthy, and God, we praise you and thank you. It's through your Son's name that we pray. Amen. So Hebrews 13, the end.